everyone. I hope you're all lovely and cosy and you're enjoying this winter solstice broadcast. Maybe you've got some mulled wine on the go and I'm imagining lots of big woolly socks. And if you're not doing any of that, frankly, I think you should up your game. My name's Emma Anderson and I present a programme called Unfinished Unpublished. Each week I speak to a writer or an artist or a musician about creative projects that were never completed or that never made it out into the world. Today I've got some clips for you from the episodes that I've done so far, so you'll get a flavour of the kinds of projects we've been talking about. As well as that, I've included what I think are some of the most thought-provoking comments from my guests about the nature of doing creative work. You'll hear what they feel about projects that have remained unfinished, about the value to be found in hobbies and unpaid work, and even some tips about how to persevere with writing and art, even when it gets difficult. You'll be hearing from Mary McGrath, an author whose story entitled Sup was shortlisted this year for the Mogford Prize for Food and Drink Writing, judged by Stephen Fry and Prue Leith. There are also clips from Sophie Cooper, a musician who just recently was nominated for an Ivan Novello Composer Award, Sophie came on the programme to tell me about an art installation she didn't make called Progland, which was a model theme park with rides based on prog rock album covers. You'll also hear from David Spittle, a poet and filmmaker who had three different unfinished projects to tell me about, including an enormous poem that's intended to cover all things and never to be finished. Another voice is that of Gilly Kleiman, a choreographer slash artist who told me about a project called Grief Dances, based on dances she experienced while grieving for her mum. And finally, there are clips from Rachel Shaw, a writer who, very bravely, came on Unfinished to talk about a blog that she started as a way of recording her experience of having breast cancer. You too are very welcome to come on the programme, if you have an unfinished or unpublished project you'd like to talk about, my email address is unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. Or you can get to me on Twitter, which is at truebagglerag. And because that's a bit weird, I can spell it. It's at T-R-U-E-B-A-G-G-L-E-R-A-G. I'm about to start off my selection of clips with my guests describing their unfinished and unpublished projects. At the end of this selection, you'll hear Sophie telling me about her work on Progland, including the embarrassing fate of the giant green teapot she made as part of the project. Before her, we have Rachel talking about why she started writing her blog in response to her diagnosis of cancer, followed by Gilly explaining how grief dances came about. We also have Mary telling me her idea for a book that blends recipes with fiction, and, to kick us off, a quick list of the three very different projects that David discussed with me. Okay, what I'll do is I'll read out the three suggestions that you've given me for your unfinished projects, and then we can pick one. So the three suggestions that you gave me were a novel that explores cinema history and Alzheimer's as a way of revisiting the life of your granddad through a series of strange dreams that explore an imagined cinema. Mm -hmm. The second one was a mad long poem (laughs) that explores evolution, wonder, aphids and Atlantis among other things (laughs) and the third one was a film which will remain veiled with mystery because you're still in the process of composing ideas (laughs) which one of those would you like to tell me about (laughs) I'll tell you about them all really quickly 
Well, if it worked, Emily, it, it, in my head, it would be good. If, if I go back to Ireland and childhood, we always had, um, we didn't have very many books, but we had a cookbook in the house, and every Irish family, I think, did. A writer called Mary Lavin. She, I mean, she's an Irish author and she's she's well-travelled and she was a cook. She wrote a story, a series of stories in this cookbook and then some recipes. And I, no pun intended, but I devoured those stories as a child and just constantly read them. I like to cook. I you know, really like to cook. And I have this idea of using some of my, my stories as they stand, like I have an array of stories and then writing some new ones. And I'm thinking of collating a set of recipes, my recipes, for different things, but they would be themed. I've not said this to anyone before. They would be theme-linked to my stories. I think that's a brilliant idea. Thank you. That's what I mean by I'm excited by it. And to go back to SUP, SUP would fit in there. Some of the recipes, some of the dishes from mentioned in that story could be some recipes. And I'm halfway through... Mixed in is a children's story. I'm just playing. It's just a playful story. And, you know, I have a I have an array of stories I could already use and then I could write some more and attach recipes to them. And I think I, in my head I can see it. Like I, I really can see that book. <laughs> I would definitely buy that. Thank you. I still think it'd make a really good Christmas present. <laughs> you started writing again after a bit of a gap. Have you reflected at all on why you felt an impulse to start writing again in response to that diagnosis? Mm, well, it was it wasn't my idea and it was a really definite moment. So when I was diagnosed, I went straight into counselling. I knew I would need some kind of help to get through it all. Yeah. And I think in one of our really early discussions, my counsellor, who was so wonderful, she just said... Um, you know, people usually have a coping strategy when life is difficult. So what's your coping strategy? And I didn't really have to think about it. I said, oh, I just, I write things down if I'm struggling. Mm. When I was a teenager, when I was in my early twenties, I, I always just wrote, I kept a diary. And so she said, oh, well, you should do that. And I was, I was like, oh, I haven't got time. And then she pointed out, well, you have got time now because you're not going to be going to work. So I treated my, gave myself lots of cancer treats during the last, I've pretty much stopped now, I'm trying to stop. But <laughs> one of my first cancer treats was a little Chromebook. And yeah, I just, she gave me a few tasks to start with. She kind of, she said, you know, do some brainstorms about how you're feeling and that kind of thing. But quite quickly, maybe as soon as I got it, I decided I'm going to blog. I'm going to, I set up a WordPress account yeah. and started writing about the process of being diagnosed. Well, it was a few weeks in. Um, but yeah, so it was quite a definite moment and I was, maybe I would have come to that conclusion myself, but I felt really grateful that she reminded me that that's what I used to do. And so I could do it again. Could you just give us a little description of what grief dances is? Yeah. I mean, part of the problem with grief dances is that I'm really undecided about what it is. Okay. It actually came out of my PhD. So during the process that I, of doing my PhD, mm. my mum died and she died of brain cancer. So we knew that she was going to die. So the grieving process begins from when you know that this person is going to die. Mm. Um, and then she died. And then within 10 months, two other members of my family died. 
it was rough. Um, <laughs> um, nobody wants to be a like regular at the creme. Eh? Um, <laughs> it's not, it's not fun. So grief was really around. And because I was trying to think, one of the chapters in my PhD was trying to think about lifefulness mm. as opposed to work. In my writing about life, life as opposed to work, I was very in touch with this texture of grief because that's what I was experiencing. And um, grief as a form of life or, you know, like a kind of pointing mm. to a relation um, which is outside of work. And I found myself like, sort of enjoying writing about grief mm. and then I thought and I was also like sort of enjoying writing and then I was thinking about choreography and how choreography over the past maybe 15 years or longer has been really been discussed as a kind of expanded field that comes into contact with other fields like architecture or therapy or um, lots I mean loads and loads of other things writing as well mm. And I was thinking, well, I obviously like writing and it has a relationship to choreography and sometimes it feels more or less like choreography. I was thinking about like, yeah, choreographed book and I sort of wanted to do a writing project and I started to think about like the different dances that happened before and after my mum's mm-hmm. death. Dances that I did, dances that other people did, like dances in professional spheres. So like, you know, mm-hmm. making a show and the dancing that happens there but also like a New Year's Eve dance with um, Mm. a lover that I had at the time and when we went on like a clandestine excursion and we were like dancing to Jules Holland. But actually that was so tinged with grief in lots of ways because my mum was like really close to death and also I hadn't told my parents that I was there and also I knew that this romance was going to be temporary. So that you know, like different forms of grief would come out. And I was thinking, oh, this, I don't want to perform these. Like, I don't want to do these dances again. Like, that's that's not what they are. But I would quite like to write them. Okay. I would quite like to find their form in text. So I started to, like, write different texts about each dance. And sometimes I thought, actually, I don't want to make any more performances in theatres. Maybe I should do this now with the sort of pandemic time. <laughs> um I want to I want to do a book and I want to publish it as a book and I want to see if I can get a publisher and maybe this is a way for me to enter another like creative sphere that I don't know anything about and I'm not trained for. And then I kept on going back and forth and thinking, no, well, what would it what would it be for people to come into a theatre and have that like jointness of being in a theatre, but you actually just sit down and read together? in that space and how can that space be constituted in such such a way that um you can sit and read together and that's comfortable and how can that reading that kind of solitude of reading be um in relationship to this togetherness Mm -hmm. of the theater of like being an audience and how is that similar somehow to being in grief Mm -hmm. where you're very solitary but very rarely would you like not also know someone else who's Mm -hmm. grieving for the same thing somehow and thinking about the theatre as an apparatus of imagination. So if you were sitting and reading and there was a th- an empty stage in front of you, I don't know, maybe this is because I make performances, but when I see an empty stage, things happen in my mind. Things appear there. I did actually make one piece of Progland um, before I realised it was a ridiculous idea. And my sort of 
idea was um, that each of these album covers that I selected could be the, in the in themselves like an original theme park ride. The one I actually made was based on Gong's flying teapot, which is literally that. It's like a green flying teapot, which has... Does, does it have that on the top of it? I couldn't have ever imagined it. Well, in my head, though, I was like, you'd have the flying teapot and then you could have, you know, like swings on the outside and like it would go round and round the top and like people could sit in the swings and go around like a sort of ferry. Oh, uh, OK. Ferris yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my idea was to kind of like make these objects... God knows how I thought I was going to do it with like the mechanics. But I made a paper mache teapot and like made it perfect. It looked just like the album cover. <laughs> and it was about half a meter, <laughs> half a meter across. Like, and it's round. It was massive. I made it at home at paper mache, like really enjoyed making it. And then I was like, what the hell am I going to do with this massive teapot? Like, I can't, <laughs> I haven't got any space for this. So yeah, so that was like the, the only thing I'd actually done, and then and then I was gonna make one like fascinate like one great idea. I, I mean, God, I wish this was a place we could visit. It'd be amazing, like um, King Crimson's uh, Court of the Kings and of the Crimson King album, which has that guy on the front of it with it's iconic. It's it's really famous. He's got his mouth wide open, and I was just like, yeah, that would be perfect to like go on a on a on a roller coaster through I could imagine it being like the top because it's a massive wide open mouth imagine it being the top of a roller coaster and then you just like go straight down like the big one in Blackpool or something I thought that would be like the main piece in Progland in the installation I didn't really imagine it being life-size in that you could personally go on the roller coaster I sort of imagine it being mechanized so like you know, imagine like little mice on it, not not really, but that kind of size yeah. in the room going around it. So you'd have all these different like fantasy points of the room with all these crazy rides that, that little objects could go on, like a model a model theme park, I suppose. It's crackers. <laughs> it sounds fantastic. <laughs> I've I've got to ask what happened to the teapot in the end. Well, <laughs> Oh, it's so it's really embarrassing actually. But um, so I was living in Oval in London with my friend Ben. We had to leave because the landlady, who was horrible by the way, she wanted to sell the property. So we were packing up to move out, and for some stupid reason, I thought it'd be okay to just leave the teapot in the cupboard, <laughs> just like <laughs> under the stairs. And I was like, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I can't be asked to move this. I'll just leave it. It's fine. She can just get rid of it. I don't like this woman anyway. And then really embarrassingly, she came round just as we were moving out and she like checked all the all the doors and she found it. <laughs> she found it. I'll never forget the look she gave me. She just thought I was like off Morocco. Like, why have you got this massive? <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it was like the last thing that we out the house as well. Was like walking down the road to Camberwell with this giant teapot. As well as asking my guests to dig into their bottom drawers to bring to light their unfinished work, I was interested to hear how they felt about not finishing things and about keeping things private. They gave me some surprising, inspiring and funny answers about the value to be found in work that isn't completed. You're about to hear David talking about how unfinished work is never wasted, 
and why he's writing a poem that he intends never to finish. Mary tells me about the hardest thing she's ever written, and Rachel ponders whether editing her blog may lose some of the immediacy of her writing. First, though, we have Gilly using vegetable growing as an extended metaphor for why unfinished work is always fruitful. How do I feel about it? I always feel a bit like rats. Oh, I could have, should have carried on with that. But on, on another level, I just think none of it's ever lost. Like, I, I sort of think about that in terms of the vegetables I'm growing. Like, my corn didn't work. And that was really disappointing because it looked really good. But then there was a really windy day and, oh, it, annoying. and yeah. like it ruined it. And I'm like, OK, well, this is my first try. So like all of that corny material will now like rot down in the compost bin. And then I'll put that and I'll try again next year. And let's let's see, see what happens. And maybe I don't want to do corn next year after all. Maybe I just want to do loads and loads and loads of peas. I don't know if any of it ever gets put in the bin, really. So I loved what you said about amateurism as as love as kind of I think you said DIY enjoyment so I was going to ask them presumably if you have all these different ideas going around and you're doing it for the love of it presumably you don't care that much if your stuff or if some ideas don't get finished and don't get out into the world yeah um I think if I'm being totally honest it's hard not to care because I think you're so when you begin writing you're so kind of conditioned into the notion that it needs to find an end point and that you need to have some kind of moment of I don't know if it's self-congratulation or or um, about the ego or whatever but it's hard to get out of that and I'd be lying if I said that I didn't want these projects to find homes but I do think Mm. that I've kind of acknowledged that if you are working like this, that necessarily some things won't land and, and some things will remain unfinished in a way that means they're like, they're never going to really find a final form. And I think certain, I think there are certain things that will remain unfinished, but can still find a home in that state. Mm. I do know, like I have worked on things where I'm really, I'll realize that I'm driving it into the ground and it's no, it no longer feels right for whatever intuitive reason. And that, it's a lot of work, but it doesn't go anywhere. But it, but again, it feeds the next thing and it feeds the next thing. So none of it is ever wasted. I don't think this idea of unfinished is waste or anything like that ever. The next one was a mad long poem about atheism. <laughs> I've got like a whole list of <laughs> hilarious things that I've written down that I'm like, this poem shall include deep sea animals, Daphnia, a fossil of flight, whatever that means, evolution. <laughs> pharmaceuticals, Octavia Paz, encyclopedic esoterica, considering cannibalism, sunflowers, brain coral, the arcade, <laughs> like Walter Benjamin's the arcade. Basically, I kind of wanted, I, I always, it's kind of eyes bigger than your stomach syndrome. I love the idea of an ambitious, mm. raggedy project that never gets finished. So this kind of ties in quite neatly with the subject here. These kind mm. of life projects where you you get the feeling they're never going to be finished or they're created to not finish. You know, they're created in order that there is something always going on. I love that idea of just creating this kind of mad labyrinthine collection of something. Really in love with the idea of the sort of foolhardy attempt to contain everything, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, you get it in... Not not always because there are incredible uh, examples of this by by women writers, but I I just think there's something about 
the kind of trappings of a certain kind of masculinity as well that the, mm. this kind of phallocentric conquest which i find quite funny as well um the, the you know the, the kind of humor and the ridiculousness of that of, of finding some sort of purpose in the tome i, I yeah I, I think that's really entertaining and funny and, and how, how could you inhabit that in a way that was not simply masturbatory or if it was to kind of yeah. absolutely embrace that <laughs> in a way that has, has humor <laughs> and isn't actually like trying to do the these are these are my tablets down from the mountain i mean the i wrote a story in lockdown and i labored over it i spent i would say three months overall and i've been thinking about it for years but i was trying to imagine lives that i almost couldn't imagine probably the hardest thing i've written and <laughs> it's not a particularly successful story it's just quite bleak <laughs> And my two readers, <laughs> they say, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> I don't think they love it. And I don't love it, but it was the hardest work. But, I, you know, I, I won't give up on it. I'm not going to abandon it just because nobody liked it. <laughs> so it's just funny, you know, and then you come into the territory of, are you writing for just your own pleasure? So the subject matter is obviously really intimate and honest. Mm. And when I read it, the first time you sent me an extract, I felt that its unfinishedness mm. kind of contributes to that in the sense as though it, it doesn't feel massively edited. It feels very immediate. Do you think that further editing, either by you or by someone else, do you think that would put up more of a barrier between you or the readers? Yeah, I think it's the funny thing about the nature of it, because my original plan was that I'd kind of upload these blogs weekly like because I read them when I, I was diagnosed I read lots of blogs that people shared on Instagram or on WordPress so when I was first writing them that's what I thought would happen in which case obviously I would have hopefully I would have edited the grammatical and typos and spellings and things but the the structure of it and the imagery that might pop in I would have left and then I suppose it's the longer I've left it, the more confused I get about whether I should just leave them as they are. But publishing them now would be strange because they're not immediate. It's not, I can't remember exactly how I felt at that time. So I suppose I've just got to trust it that that's, that I was being honest. So yeah, I don't think I, I wouldn't edit them more than just to tidy them up a little bit. But it's hard to do that, especially as an English teacher. I find it really, really hard. As well as finding value in unfinished and unpublished work itself, all of my guests had fascinating things to say about the importance of hobbies and unpaid work. It turns out there are some complicated relationships between work, leisure, money and identity. And with that in mind, at the end of this section, I talked to Mary about how no one listens to this show and to Gilly about my failure to do professional links. Before that, it's Gilly on why she admires a friend who keeps newts and Sophie on music being a hobby. I mean, really, it's a hobby. You know what I mean? It's not like, yeah, okay, I make my living out of like music activity, but my creative kind of output stuff is a hobby, very integral to my life, but it is, it's just like what yeah. I love to do. I'm quite humble realising that like, if I don't make music it's not going really going to be a problem for anyone. You know what I mean? Like, apart from me. So I'm very like aware of my positioning as not being particularly important within 
the grand scheme of things. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? It actually ties in really well with one of the things that this programme is about, which is that there is a lot of value to be found in stuff that you do either for yourself in private, you know, in your spare time as a hobby, and that it doesn't have to be listened to by millions of people in order to have a value. Absolutely. Yeah, I I really find like, I guess me coming from like a DIY background as well, where putting on gigs, particularly never made, I've never made a penny about putting on gigs don't do it for that reason um I've always had work I've had a job which is kind of yeah supported my like paying the rent paying the bills and uh, I'm totally comfortable with that it's so great to do something that is creative that I really 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 don't care if anyone likes it or not you know I could say that about my dance performances but so much is at stake mm. for me on a on a kind of identity level of like oh I want to be thought of as a good artist yeah and if people don't think I'm a good artist then you know that's really hard for me and also just on a professional level like if I make crap shows then I might not be able to make any more shows and actually making shows is how I get money sure and then I like I've been gardening uh, learning how to grow stuff like vegetables. I haven't bought any vegetables for a few weeks because I've been Sounds great. <laughs> and also like volunteering, which is not something I like. I would always be like, oh, I've got too much work. I've got too much work. But right now I'm trying to, I'm trying to work only four days a week, which doesn't always quite work out. And it's not going to this week and it didn't last <laughs> week or the week before. The week before. But I'm really trying like on a Wednesday to not turn my computer on. And the reason that it's a Wednesday is because on a Wednesday, I do food parcel deliveries okay. with a local food bank. Even though it's only a couple of hours, it clearly sort of marks that day as like, no, I've got this other thing that is not work and it's not like leisure. It's another sort of category of human activity. I remember having this weird friend once. I've talked about this on somewhere else. I can't remember now. But I had this, I had this odd friend who, who I had as a teenager. He was a friend, a really good friend when I was teenagers. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't see him for a few years. And then I bumped into him somewhere and I said, so what do you do? And I meant, are you in education or in work? Yeah. And what do you do for those things? And he was like, oh, well, I've got a couple of newts. <laughs> and at the time I thought, what, what a divvy. But now I'm like, I want to be the person who like, so I do loads of dating, yeah. right? And I'm, <laughs> I do loads of dating. I talk about it all the time. And people are all constantly saying like, what do you do? And yeah. I'm like, what do you mean? And I start to get like unreasonably enraged because I know that's like really a norm, but I find it so annoying. It's like, well, I've been trying to like turn my plants around every few days so that they grow evenly. <laughs> like that's a thing yeah. that I do. Or or like I've got a kombucha on the go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and those things are meaningful. Those things to tell would tell another person something about me. Mm. Essentially, no one listens, so we're fine. Because they won't be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite relaxing in a way. <laughs> it's just a chat, then, isn't it? Essentially. <laughs> well, we've got back onto the subject of dance, so um, I'm going to edit this bit out because it's a terrible link. Um... <laughs> I like it. You should keep it. <laughs> keep it. Be non-professional. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've really enjoyed hearing from my guests about the processes they go through when creating their work. 
In the next set of clips, Rachel and I talk about how much work writers should get done every day, and Mary admits her doubts over her own ability, she tells me how she overcomes these, and she lists the three things that she aims for in her writing. We also hear how, according to Sophie, it can be really productive to challenge yourself to work within your means. Is it the case that you quite often will have a big idea and then for whatever reason it doesn't happen? Have you got like a notebook somewhere with them all written down? I don't, yeah, I don't know if I, if I tend to have an idea or just, I'll just do it, but I think I'll probably, I'll probably be a bit more realistic about what I could do. Like in recent years, I've really kind of put a lot of like uh, emphasis and kind of like interest in working within limitations. And I, I think that's quite interesting if you've only got like one guitar pedal and a guitar and a microphone, what can you do with those three things and making something interesting out of that is really appealing to me. And I really appreciate that skill in other people as well, yeah. rather than like coveting a synth that you can't afford or a really expensive trombone, which I'm currently coveting actually, or like, you know, a, an installation space, for example. Like, so I'm kind of like, <laughs> perhaps it's perhaps it taught me a lesson to work within my means and like seeing the value of of working within your means you just mentioned there that the number of words you were writing was embarrassing and I just wanted to say that I once a while ago actually a few years ago I tweeted oh you know how many words should I be writing every day Mm. and the best answer that I got was just someone who said some yeah I think that's really true and I've kind of been thinking about that with um well, with for myself, but also with Creative Writing Club, that like the idea of regularly writing for me is more important than how many words I write. Katie, my critique partner, said we were talking about targets, and she's got a really strict word count target in mind. She wants to get to a certain point by Christmas, whereas my target is to keep looking at my blogs with a view to possibly edit them, uh, publish them, and to just keep writing. So I don't want to stop now that I've started quite regularly writing over the last year or so so yeah I agree with whoever tweeted that I certainly get so much despair I think most people do cry over it and you know I'm no good and (laughs) all the doubt and you know that's pretty endless really or not pinning down what it is you're trying to achieve and how do you overcome that just keep on plugging (laughs) (laughs) just keep on I mean my husband, John, he always says, well, you do keep on plugging. You you just don't let it go. You just keep going back to it. And he seems to find that something to admire. I just see it as, yeah, I, I don't want to be bested <laughs> by the thing I'm trying to do. I, I want to win, you know, on the piece I'm writing. When I write now, and if I do share my work, I have kind of three things I I want people to answer for me really is firstly, did the story hold your attention? Secondly, what did it leave you with? Like, even if you could say in a word, what does the story leave you with? You know, what feeling or what? And um, finally, does the story return to you? Does it pop back into your mind an hour or two or days afterwards? To me, I'm saying these are my sort of criteria that my measure of success I'm not particularly like naturally gifted at making music myself 
but I love it so much so I just persevere and just try and make it work you know but I think that's what's so great about working with experimental music because you're you're allowed to be within this world where you can do whatever you want you can play with sounds and you can throw paint around as it were and make a mess and you can just like make whatever you want work for you and I think I think that's just like perseverance and practice around music is like really fulfilling for my career so listening to you talk about that you know you said oh you weren't naturally gifted at music but I'd argue that the enthusiasm and the persistence itself is a natural gift yeah I know it's because it's because I value it so much I think that's what it is yeah I feel like I'm in a therapist tech chair it's quite interesting (laughs) one of the best things about creating unfinished and published is that several of my guests have returned to incomplete work after speaking to me about their projects Rachel for example made her blog public after her appearance on the show So the next set of clips are about what it's been like for me and my guests to create the programme. You may be pleased to know that these are the last extracts. We'll be hearing from Rachel about how she did her interview with me as part of a newfound love of seizing the day. And Sophie asks for volunteers who'd like to help her make Progland. I do also have to warn you that right at the end, there's a bit of self-congratulation. Apologies for that in advance I overuse it a bit but that idea of not sweating the small stuff just yeah letting things go and things like this as well I would I wouldn't have done this before I wouldn't have said yeah go on I'll talk on a radio program I'd have been far too worried about sounding like a dick which I might do (laughs) I've always thought about it because when I saw your tweet I was like it immediately came to mind it's like progland I need to talk about it (laughs) But I would love it. I would absolutely like love it if an artist was listening to the show who was like, way more capable of doing it than I was, and I could just be like the artistic director. Well, I was about to say, you never know. You never know who might pick it yeah, up. Yeah, you never know. And like, I think that would be the best thing. I think it's too big for one person. <laughs> do, do you enjoy doing this? I mean, like, it's. Oh, I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's, fun. Yeah, it's a wonderful idea as well, I think, the unfinished thing. Finally, as a treat to you all for making it to the end of the programme, the last thing you'll hear is a track from Sophie Cooper. It's calming and gorgeous and the perfect thing for a winter's evening. Um, so this track I picked is called Nowhere From The Water To Go and it's by... The Slowest Lifts, this is a band I'm in with, with a very good friend of mine, Julian Bradley, and it's a nine-minute epic. <laughs> so uh, combining, like, guitar and vocals and loads of electronics, and uh, I picked it because it's the most proggy of our tracks. 